Well, good morning. We uh, better get going if we're going to make it through today. Uh, I'll open us up in prayer, and then we will pick up with Deuteronomy 13. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed your glory to us, and especially that that glory has come in your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who has atoned for our souls by the sacrifice of his own body. We thank you that you have gathered us together here as your people, and we pray that for this next hour, as you have in the past, so you would continue to teach us and to guide us, to lead us in your wisdom, that it may go well for us and for our children after us. Bless us with greater knowledge and deepened faith as a result of our time, and strengthen us for the tasks of obedience you've set before us for this week. And we ask it in your Son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy 13 this morning. We will be picking up in verse 6. And if you have the handouts that I have at the doors, we will do a quick review in bullet point fashion, just as you have it before you. We mentioned last week that temptations are inevitably going to rise for Israel once they enter the promised land. And there are five cases in which those temptations will arise. And in the ESV, most of them begin with when or if. So in verse 20 of chapter 12, Deuteronomy 12, verse 20 is the first one. It says, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory, or if the Lord enlarges your territory. We saw last week why that is a conditional circumstance in Israel's future. If that were to happen, there will be some, tape, some temptations that will arise. One temptation will be, I'm hungry, I want to eat meat. And so when people are in foreign place, or are not by the sanctuary, they are able to eat that meat but they have to drain the blood on the ground and cover it with the earth. They may not sacrifice it to some other god, nor may they consume the blood. And those in particular are the temptations that will arise for Israel, either to sacrifice what they're eating to foreign gods or to consume the blood on their own. And the Lord says, don't do it. The second case comes in verse 29 of chapter 12. When or if the Lord your God cuts off before you nations and you go in and dispossess them, do not worship the way they worship. This is following the wisdom from defeated enemies. That is a temptation. We have overcome the world, and the world's wisdom has nothing to offer the Christian church. Yet, we are constantly tempted to live by the wisdom of the world. And the Lord says, don't do it. The third case, chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, do not listen to the words of that prophet. Prophets and dreamers were what we might call a professional class similar to priests or pastors in our own day. One could be trained to be a prophet, and one could be trained to be a dreamer and receive revelation from a god, and in some cases from the Lord himself. 
you will remember that there were schools of prophets even in the land of Israel. Saul himself was caught up among a parade of one of those schools of prophets. It was a legitimate practice even in Israel. But what Moses is saying here is even if one of those prophets gives you a sign and it comes to pass and he encourages you to invite a God other than Yahweh, don't listen to him. Instead, stone him in order that you may purge the evil from your midst. Verse 5. That leads us this morning to a fourth case, a fourth temptation that might arise in Israel in regard to false worship. I will read uh, Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, all the way through verse 11. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. This is what happens now, not if a professional, we might say, tries to entice you to worship a foreign god. What if an intimate associate tries to entice you into worshiping a false god? Now, the list of relations here in verse 6, the brother, uh, your brother, the son of your mother, or your uh, son or your daughter or your wife or your friend, that list isn't meant to be expansive, clearly. What it is meant to do is draw out the depth of emotion that is connected with this individual. An example of this is if we go back to Genesis 22, verse 2. We see God doing something similar with Abraham as he is testing him to know whether or not he is going to follow the Lord with his whole, all his heart, all his soul, and all his might, or whether he will not. So Genesis 22 Starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In Genesis 22, the Lord is making the task more difficult for Abraham. Repeatedly, It's not just your son. It is your only son. Then he names him Isaac. Then whom you love. Which is to say, I'm going to make this difficult for you. I'm going to ask the one thing of you that is most near and dear to you. And that's what I want you to sacrifice. 
What's going on in the list in Deuteronomy 13.6 is the same sort of thing. Because the brother of your own mother, first it assumes a polygamous context. Not necessarily the son of your father, but the son of your mother. And you'll share a special kinship with your own blood uh, from your own mother more than you would from the brother of your father. For example, Jacob had 12 sons. Which ones were closest? The ones that shared the same mother, not necessarily the same father. There's a special kinship between Joseph and Benjamin. They come particularly from the wife whom Jacob loved. And so the point that he's drawing out in Deuteronomy 13.6 by this brother, the son of your mother, that brother doesn't set him apart from any other brother he has in any special way. It doesn't mean if you have some other brother, you can ignore him. It's fine. Let him do what he's going to do. That's not what it's saying. It's trying to draw out the intimacy of the connection with this particular brother because he is the one who comes from your own mother. The same thing then follows with son or daughter. It again is amping up the emotional connection this person has in that relationship because that relationship should be even more dear than the brother from your own mother. It takes one more step again. The wife whom you embrace amps it up even further. The connection between a man and his wife should exceed that between a man or his wife and their children. And then it puts the last knot in with what we would find to be going the wrong way, your friend who is as your own soul. There's a couple things going on here. You will remember that it is said of David and Jonathan that the love that they shared was stronger than that between a man and a woman. Um, That's what it means to have one as your own soul. In the ancient Near East, it was often common for a man to have as his most intimate associate, not his wife, his most infinite confidant would be a friend, such as David and Jonathan. And so now it's not just the one you embrace, it's the one who is as your own soul, which is a sharing of something internal and not merely the externality of an embrace. And so Moses is trying to draw out, it doesn't matter how close this person is to you. There is no person who ought to be exempt from what you are about to do. And you shall not go with them just because they are close to you. The other beings who receive a little bit of elaboration in this case is verse 7, referring to the gods who they are trying to entice us to worship. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, so whether in the land of Canaan, outside the land of Canaan, from one end of the earth to the other. So this is complete expansion here. There is no god any place in all of creation that Israel is to accept an invitation to worship if it is not from your God, Yahweh. There's one God who is to be worshipped. This is in contrast to how God is described in verse 5. So if we go up just a little bit, what is Israel's God like? He is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. To make um, That's what, what your God is like. 
The foreign gods that are near you or far from you, they've done nothing for you. At best, they've been antagonistic to you. Indifferent at best. At worst, completely antagonistic. Don't go and serve those gods. Stick with the God who has actually done something for you. And the God who has proven himself in foreign lands. And in the case of verse 6 to 11, which stands in the future, this is also the God who has proven himself inside the land of Canaan. So he is more powerful than any deity in the land of Canaan, more powerful than any deity outside the land of Canaan. He showed himself over the gods of the Egyptians, and so he has no competition, no rivals. Don't worship other gods. It's folly. Now if, verse 6, if that loved person quietly and secretly invites you or tries to lead you astray, in devotion to Yahweh, the reaction to the person who is invited ought to be so extreme and so strong that they pitilessly deliver him up to death. Look at how Moses explains it in verse 8. There are five verbs that come in consecutively. Do not consent, do not listen or obey, do not pity, do not spare, do not conceal. Now you can see how they work in reverse order. It begins with, do not agree with him, then do not obey, but then do nothing that would prevent him from being brought to divine justice. So uh, do not pity, spare, or conceal, which is to hide this person but rather, verse 9, and here's the finale, but you shall kill him. Which is, if it is your brother, your son or daughter, your wife, your close friend, you are to be the first one to cast the stone. And afterwards, everyone else comes and joins in. The reason they are to be stoned is because just like Earlier in verse 6, this person tries to thrust them away from the Lord. Verse 10, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you or thrust you away from the Lord your God. And it's elaborated again, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So again, death penalty for thrusting them or in verse 6, seducing them to worship other gods. There are just a few remarkable features I want to point out, and then we'll pause uh, for thoughts and comments. First, the pathway to destruction seems pretty reasonable at the time. Verse 6, if this person tries to entice you or seduce you in going in a different direction... A couple different examples we could look at here. 1 Samuel 26, verse 19. The same word for seduce or entice comes up. And it's worth seeing in narrative form because it shows us how, how it happens. 1 Samuel 26, verse 19. David is being pursued by Saul... And they have a little confrontation here. And David says this to Saul in verse 19. Now therefore, 
Let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, that word stirred up is enticed. Someone who has persuaded you or put it in your heart to do something. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men whispering in your ear, telling them that I'm trying to usurp you, telling them that I am your great enemy, trying to convince you by the circumstances you see around you. If it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. So this is essentially what's happening here. Either the Lord or men are part of what is going on in the background of Saul's mind, speaking to him, saying something like, David is against you. He's not among the Lord's people, therefore, because he's against the Lord's anointed. So drive him out of the country, and by driving him out of the land of Israel, they're essentially saying to him, you should be worshiping other gods, not the God of this land. And so David comes and he says, if it is men trying to entice you against me, and they're trying to tell you that I ought to go and serve other gods, let them be cursed by the Lord, because that's not what I'm about. One more example, First Chronicles 21.1. It has a parallel verse in Second Samuel 24.1. We're not going to look at that one, just First Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited, same word again, incited David to number Israel. Uh, so here it is someone giving David the idea that he ought to do something, directing him in a direction he should not go. But the best example that we have, I think, in Scripture is 1 Kings 21, 21, 5. So 1 Kings 21, verse 25. This is Ahab and Jezebel. There is no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Now, no doubt that that little phrase, Jezebel, his wife, incited, is a reference back to Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, the wife whom you embrace. In verse 26, he acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done when the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And what's going on here is this is said in the context of Naboth's vineyard. Ahab wants the vineyard because it's next to his palace. Naboth refuses because it's his land, a portion to his family from the Lord, going all the way back to when Joshua and Eliezer distributed the land. And Jezebel, his wife, is the one who provokes Ahab by convincing him that he ought to kill Naboth and confiscate his vineyard. So it is through a convincing conversation that it seemed reasonable that Ahab ought to take this course of action. And so the point here, going back to Deuteronomy 13, 6, this enticement often seems reasonable at the time that it happens. Nevertheless, we are not supposed to pay attention to it. And it happens like this. All your Christian friends 
accept this person's sexuality. They just want to love someone of their own choosing, like you do. Right? That's what you do. So what, what's wrong if they do it? Now, that seems pretty reasonable on, on the face of it, right? Uh, but underneath, there's something far more seditious going on than the argument that's being presented up front. What the Lord does then is he closes all doors on this person's survival. There is no way this person who entices an Israelite to worship a foreign god is to be given any safe haven. They are to be delivered up to death, no matter how dear they are to us. God demands our highest affection. More than the brother of your own mother, your son or daughter, the wife whom you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul. The Lord's, our affection for the Lord ought to be higher than any one of those. That means when we go to a place like Matthew 10, Jesus is not quite as extreme as he might first appear. Matthew 10, verses 35 to 39. Well, we can start in 34. The whole thing fits in here quite well. Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And here it's a reference to spiritual enemies, which is these people in your own household are those who are going to be trying to lead you astray and saying, let us worship other gods whom you have not known. And then Jesus goes on, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. One more thing we can see here is Jesus is claiming the divine right of our highest affections. So just as this morning in Mark 6, Jesus passing by the boat makes a claim to deity, right here he's making a claim to deity if we understand Deuteronomy 13. This is Jesus saying, that affection that belongs to your God who pulled you out of the land of Egypt, that belongs to me and not to anyone else around you. So because our love for God exceeds all others, he places responsibility in our laps to break ties with those who try to trip us up. And then the community joins in. Again, Jesus is on par here. Matthew 18, verse 6, where he says something quite similar for those who would cause another to stumble. Maybe starting in verse 5, that's where the sentence begins. So Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea.
That makes perfect sense in light of Deuteronomy 13 as its background. And then the severity for acting faithlessly in the next two verses also fits right in. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And he goes on and does the same thing with the eye. With Deuteronomy 13 in the background, we could also say, better for you to go through life without your best friend than for you to be enticed to worship a God other than Jesus. And that's, that's where uh, Moses takes us. By forcing the near relation to be the first to put their hand against this person, it does two things that are really quite ingenious. First, it helps ensure that we're not careless in our actions. If you have to be the first one to stone the person nearest you, you're going to be pretty hesitant to do it. The second thing it does is it gives evangelistic disciples of idols nowhere to hide. There is no safe place for them. They're trying to do this secretly, and that should kick back against them. And the reason for such harsh treatment isn't only justice in the present, it is also security for the future. Notice how verse 11 of Deuteronomy 13 ends. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. So the secret policing here, which really isn't so secret, is what allows Israel to retain her freedom in the Lord and continue on securely in God's presence with his favor. Galatians 1 is maybe the place we'll end this topic. Paul does something similar, and it will bleed us in to the next paragraph of Deuteronomy. But Galatians 1, starting in verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The reason for that is there is only one gospel. And if we don't worship that gospel, then we have been drawn away from the person of Jesus Christ, uh, who is the gospel. So Paul says, if there is such a person as that, let him be accursed, which is anathema in the Greek, let him be put out. Um, let him be to you as if he were executed. Um, so relationally execute that person from the church because they are trying to draw you away from the Lord. Thoughts or questions over this paragraph of Deuteronomy 13?
Yeah, um, we can't understand the New Testament if we don't understand the Old. Right. We? Yeah, in Jesus' eyes, it is life or death. Anything else? Okay. Well, branching off then from Galatians 1, back to Deuteronomy 13, Paul's anathema for those who would preach another gospel is not only for individuals, it's also for groups, as he is speaking against the Judaizers in, in Galatians. So speaking of groups, Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true that certain and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. So now we are dealing with cities that have become asylums for idolatry. There are conditions to this as well. Verse 12, if you hear in your cities that certain worthless fellows, verse 13, have gone out and have drawn or thrust away the inhabitants of their city. So this is the third time Moses is speaking about people being thrust away out of the Lord's path. So they've gone out, which is they've departed from the national bent, a national Yahweh bent of the nation. And they have worshipped other gods, and they have thrust out the people. Now that could mean that they have driven the people out of the city, and they have taken it over as a capital of idolatry. Or it could mean that in the other cases, if, um, if a prophet or dreamer tries to thrust you out of the way, it's an attempt. If someone close to you tries to thrust you out of the way, it's an attempt. Now here, it looks like they'd be successful which is they have actually succeeded in bringing the people of the city along in their idolatry. And if you wonder how in the world a whole city can be taken over from idolatry, it's because the first two paragraphs were not obeyed. It starts with intimate associates. It starts with professionals. 
who lead people astray. And so you can imagine a prophet coming into town saying, I have this message that I want you to hear. Oh, and here's a sign. Now let's worship other gods. And the people are swept up in it. And the whole city ends up going. Or it starts off slowly. A small family begins perhaps worshiping this way. And they're a successful family in town. And other people in the town see that and say, how in the world did they get their success? Well, let's maybe try doing what they're doing. When I was growing up, uh, our family motto was, if you see Jim Graber doing it, go ahead and do it. He's a good farmer. So he's take your cues from him. He's still got wide rows. We're keeping wide rows. Right? Uh, so, so there's that sort of mentality. Uh, do what this guy does because they're successful. And eventually the whole town ends up getting taken over by it. So what is the nation to do when a whole city succumbs to idolatry? Verse 14. Inquire. You shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. That is a threefold overlap of verbs to stress the need for caution and care. Do not be haphazard. Do not be rash. You make sure that what you are about to do has a good foundation in reality. And if it is true, verse 15. You shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. Does anyone have a different translation than devote to destruction? Utterly destroy. destroy. What's your... New New King James? Okay. I'm going to pause here for just a minute and draw this out a little bit, because I think it's an important concept to to understand. The New King James tells us what the outcome is. The ESV does something similar when it says, devote it to destruction. But it kind of misses what's going on underneath the surface a little bit. To devote to destruction is one term, and it's a religious term that God has exclusive claim to an object, and therefore that object is most holy. The emphasis should be on devote, not on destruction. Because there are some items that are devoted to the Lord that are never destroyed. Destruction of devoted items only happens in certain cases. Not all cases. In fact, a lot of what Israel devotes, if Israel devotes something willingly to the Lord, if they say, I have got this piece of land that I want to devote to the Lord, they give it to the Lord and the priests have it. If Israel wants to devote something to the Lord, an animal, they take it and it's either burnt or it's offered to the priests. They have a share in it. So all devoted things are holy, which means no layperson can have it. Not all devoted things are necessarily destroyed. They become destroyed when the holy thing is no longer fit for honoring the Lord. This city belongs to the Lord, just like all cities in Israel do. Which, by the way, is why devotion, uh, devoting things to destruction only happens within Israel's borders. It's only within those borders that the Lord has claimed for himself. And so this city, no longer being a fit vessel of honor for the Lord, ends up being destroyed. And you can see the parallels there of language in Romans 9, right? Some mercies, uh, some vessels 
prepared for mercy, others devoted for destruction. That's because they are not fit for honoring the Lord. And so uh, they are to destroy the city, which is the result of what is going on. So not all things belong exclusively to the Lord. These here things that are devoted, uh, not being honorable for the Lord, end up being destroyed. So I had mentioned uh, this idea of devotion explains a few things. The first one I already mentioned, why it only happens inside Israel. One side comment I'm going to make, there's only one case in Scripture where there is a nation outside the land of Israel who is trying to devote something to destruction. This was not a common practice in the ancient Near East. It's unique to Israel for the most part. There's one exception in Scripture. When Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes to lay siege to Jerusalem, he comes to devote Jerusalem to destruction which is he devotes it to his God, and it will then be his God's claim. And what happens? Hezekiah prays, O Lord, don't let them destroy this city. Make your name great among the nations. The Lord will have no rivals for what he claims to be his. And he turns Sennacherib away in response to Hezekiah's prayer that the Lord would honor his name. Israel, and Jerusalem in particular, belongs to this God. All of the cities in this land are the ones that are devoted to destruction. When Israel went to war in other countries, it was not to devote their cities to destruction. It was only inside the land of Canaan because that is the territory that the Lord had claimed for himself. Paul speaks in similar ways in regards to the church. 1 Corinthians 5. Now we would say in one sense the Lord owns everything. He not only owned the land of Israel, he owned everything, right? Egypt, Mesopotamia, America as it was back in the day, everything belonged to the Lord. But the Lord had an exclusive claim, uh, a unique claim, we might say, on the land of Israel. In the same way, all people belong to the Lord, but he has a unique claim to the church. He's placed his name on the church. And so Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 5, Verse 11 and 12. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Then he has this, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now that is a quote from Deuteronomy later on. uh, Three different places in Deuteronomy, the Lord exhorts Israel to purge the evil from among you. He doesn't use that exact quote here, but the concept is here, right? Purging the evil from their midst. We already saw that um, earlier on in verse 5. And the idea is here with the cities as well. So there is this special concern for those who are inside the Lord's covenant people. Even though that act of devoting to destruction is assigned to outsiders, 
Uh, That is not something Israel takes on herself. The second thing this idea of devotion helps explain, I think, is the death of all that breathes in verse 15. You shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. No one survives if they do not belong to the Lord. The same thing happened with Jericho, the first city that Israel overtook when they came into the land of Canaan. This is what they did with it. They killed everyone, gathered everything into the city square, and they burned it, never again to be raised. And then Joshua seals it with a curse uh, that whoever raises Jericho again will do so at the cost of their first and lastborn. In this case, or in, in Jericho's case, Rahab was given asylum not because she was a Canaanite, but because she converted to Yahwehism ahead of time. So she does not, uh, being one who is fit for honoring the Lord, keeps her life, as does her household. In this case, it is assumed that there is no one left in it uh, who attains a Rahab status. And so everyone is killed, including all of the cattle, and the whole city is burned. It also explains that the place remains unusable in perpetuity. Verse End of verse 16, it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. And then that Israel cannot make use of anything in it. Uh, We already looked at earlier on in the first part of uh, verse 16. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Nothing is supposed to cling to their hand, uh, as, as the Hebrew has it, and as it comes out here in verse 17. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, which means their love for the Lord not only exceeds their love for their near relations, but also their love for prosperity. Uh, so they are to be happy to burn everything that is there. Is such slaughter reasonable? Is this a reasonable act, action, or does the Lord get a little carried away in what he commands of his people? First, God has the right to say what belongs to him to the exclusion of others. So whether the city is rebuilt again, whether anything in it belongs to other people, whether anyone can survive, they all belong to the Lord, and he is the one who determines whether or not it is right that they continue on living. Number two, that slaughter represents God's judgment against sin. It serves as a punishment to the condemned and a warning to the living. Exodus 22, verse 20. You will remember that Moses is giving his commentary on the law that was given already. It's a divinely inspired commentary, but a commentary nonetheless. So he's looking back for everything he says. And he says, the Lord says here in Exodus 22, verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. 
This is a warning to keep things rightly ordered. It is a misordering for the people who belong to the Lord to worship any other god. They are holy to the Lord, so they are to be holy to the Lord. And they are to suppress anyone who would disrupt that order when that arises in their midst. Which means then, number three, whether this is reasonable or not, morality is measured by God, not by us. So whether it is right for Israel to slaughter this city and burn it, the rightness of that is determined not by our sense of what is right and wrong, but by the Lord's sense of what is right and wrong. And we can see that crop up here in verse 18. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. So the Lord claims doing this is right, it is pleasing in his eyes. And for doing what is pleasing in his eyes, he gives a blessing. We skipped over it, verse 17. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. Why? That the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. The Lord hits one of the great fears here in Israel. There are... We have to look back in history in order to really understand it well, but we can see it clearly even in our own day. Why did little towns crop up all over America where they did originally? Where were they placed? Either by water or by a railroad. Intersections of commerce and sustainability, right? That's where most cities were. In Israel, cities were located because they were strategic for commerce or for military, or because it was a place of easy survival. There's a water source there. So where Israel places its cities was not random. No one in the ancient Near East placed a city in the middle of nowhere where they had no resources and no people. You don't do that because you can't survive. So where a city is placed is very strategic. What happens when one of those strategic cities is completely destroyed. What is your fear? You have lots of fears. We just lost a perfectly livable place to live. Or, well, now this foreign enemy can invade us because we have no fortress between us and them. Or, we lost our ability to tax people passing through from Egypt to Mesopotamia and back and forth. We're going to lose income. Not only that, we've lost a portion of our population. We've had a reduction in numbers. So Israel is all the way, it seems, worse off. And the Lord comes back and hits those fears and says, No, you do this because I will have compassion on you and I will multiply you. You will not be worse off for destroying the city. You will be better off for destroying the city because blessing doesn't come from strategy. Blessing comes from obedience. And the Lord says, obey, and things will go well for you. If you don't obey, then the fierceness of my anger will be poured out on you, and no fortress, no water will give you life. Life comes from me. So the Lord uh, ends his section on uh, harshness against idolaters 
with a blessing and we might say an implicit curse. Thoughts or questions over what we've covered today? It would depend a lot on what perspective that person is coming from. If, if their concern centers on the idea of the idolatry, I would simply um, bring them back to the text and say, how we are in relation to Christ, how we are spiritually, is a matter of life and death, death not just for the individual, but the people around us as well. And so if we are off kilter spiritually and let that slide, that will drag other people down as well. So if we were to go to contemporary application, we could deal with church discipline, right? Um, Where we might say church discipline is the suppression of multiple ideas, but in reality it's not. It's the preservation of proper worship. There are things that are pleasing to the Lord and there are things that aren't pleasing to the Lord and it's very important that we know the difference between them. There would be a lot more to the conversation, I hope. But... I would at the least say it is a comparative emotion. I'll point to another example. When the Lord says that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, There is a contrast there. The contrast is real, right? So so in one sense, the Lord loves everyone he's ever created, right? As, As Christians, I think we can all affirm that. But there's also an emotive contrast and comparison there. When the Lord says, Esau I hated, he doesn't leave it at that. He explains what he means. I made his land a desolate waste and, and so on. He actually put Esau at a disadvantage in every possible way. In other words, he cut off relational blessing with that individual. What Deuteronomy 13 is calling us to is cutting off relational blessing with people who would lead us astray and that is a harsh word but it's not only our spiritual preservation that's at stake it's the preservation of those who are around us as well which is why it starts with if a professional tries to lead you astray put them to death if someone in your family tries to lead you astray put them to death because if you don't the city will go and then the measures get even more intense and so each one follows the other. Is that, is that an emotional thing? 
tremendous emotional pain, yes. Yeah, it, it would appear that way. Um, but we, we can't let this contradict other laws that say there have to be at least two witnesses. Um, presumably, though again, it's, it's at best speculative and implicit in the text, given what we have other places. Presumably, it is not just this one person who has been enticed. So it's likely not, hey, this one person said to me, you know, in the secret of our room that we should do this. It's probably something they've been whispering around. Families are tight-knit, especially in this uh, ancient Near Eastern day and age, and they would have talked among each other. The secret would have only remained secret for so long, but the point is he's not doing this publicly. It's happening within the confines of your own home. It's not other people being talked about. Um, It's not a, a matter of community gossip, but it's other people. So what's really happening is the community is trusting the word of the family, not just the word of the individual. But again, that's a little bit speculative based on this text, um, simply referring to there have to be more than one witness in order for this to actually happen.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Well, thank you. I will plan to see you in two weeks. Thanks for joining.